This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. A shooting last Sunday at New Jersey federal judge Esther Salas' home that killed her son and wounded her husband highlights the threats to judges outside the courthouse. While attacks on federal judges and their families are rare, the U.S. Marshals Service, tasked with protecting about 2,700 federal judges and 30,300 other court officials, reported increases in threats and inappropriate communications against the judiciary in recent years. Joining me is Bloomberg Law reporter Madison Alder. Tell us about the suspect and his legal background. So the suspect here, um, Roy Den Hollander, is a, you know a lawyer. He had some big law ties, um, but he hadn't worked for a big law firm in quite some time. And, and what we found in our research, he is now deceased, by the way, um, according to the U.S. Attorney's Office in the District of New Jersey. He was not uh, apprehended. Some reports are saying that he was uh, found of a, a potentially a self-inflicted uh, gunshot wound. And you know, Hollander had a case. Uh, before Salas, this judge whose family was attacked. He appeared at, at before her uh, in a 2015 case uh, about the male-only military draft. From what we can tell by the docket, he was physically before her in court, um, looks like once in, in uh, 2018, and you know maybe appeared by phone before that. Do we know if the judge was the target? We do not know yet. Attorney General Barr announced that there's going to be an investigation of this by the Marshal Service. You know, they're probably looking into that, but there haven't been further details on, on if she was the, the target of the attack yet. We rarely hear about attacks on judges. How rare are they? They're, they're pretty rare. Um, they overall are, are pretty rare over the years, though there, there have been several. They come to mind when another one happens again. Um, so, you know, there have been um, at least four judges that have been killed in attacks. And then there was another case in, in 2005 where a judge's husband and mother were attacked in her home. And that case actually prompted an appropriation by Congress of $12 million to fund security systems for judges and security systems for their homes. So, you know, some of these attacks have prompted action uh, by Congress before. You know, there hasn't been discussions of that this time. It is still early, but it isn't unprecedented that, you know, security is heightened after an attack like this. Has there been a slight increase in violence against judges, according to the marshal's office? So there hasn't been an increase in violence against judges, but there has been an increase in incidents, inappropriate communications, and threats. They say that that has risen by more than 30 percent. In their budget submission, the Marshal Service budget submission for 2020, um, they addressed this and, you know, said that they expect it to rise steadily over the next few years. Um, and they're saying that could come from complex threats, is what they call them. Uh, so, you know, this is coming as, you know, judges maybe are facing a little bit more turbulence uh, when it comes to their, their positions and the types of threats that they're getting. Aren't judges protected by the U.S. Marshal Service? They are. Um, the U.S. Marshal Service, you know, I, I spoke to one man who, who used to be uh, the U.S. Marshal, John F. Muffler. He's the former administrator, chief inspector of the uh, National Center for Judicial Security. And he told me that you know, these courts are fortresses. Um, they, they are very protected 
but the more likely uh, place for an attack is outside of the courtroom. So for judges, um, like any public figure, they're more likely subject to an attack when it is at their home, at a place that they frequent, um, a you know, grocery store. Um, and those are areas where they're, they're always uh, having to be on alert. This is something that, you know, judges are concerned about. They're concerned about this for their families. Um, you know, and I, I spoke to people who said this particular situation seems like it was probably pretty unavoidable. You know, you can only do so much to, to protect yourself outside of the court and protect your home. Are they given protection at their homes? Yes. So there isn't necessarily um, marshal service protection at their home. But um, this after that 2005 attack on the judges, uh, on a federal judge's family, Congress appropriated new new money to fund home security systems. So that is what judges um, are able to have for their home security systems. Um, you know, they, they, they can be protected that way, but um, it isn't necessarily, you know, it's not like the Secret Service. You know, it's not like they have a, a bodyguard stationed outside of their house. And what about Supreme Court justices? Supreme Court justices are a different story. They do have heightened protection where they go and, you know, where they're speaking. But unfortunately for a lot of lower court judges, it's not the same. There are quite a few of them. So I think it, it becomes a matter of it potentially being a big lift to have that kind of security for, for every every lower court judge. Maddie, you spoke to retired federal judge David Herndon, a former chair of the Judicial Conference's Committee on Judicial Security, and he said that the attack on the judge's home would have been difficult to prevent, and it's the kind of thing that judges have to worry about all the time. Right. Um, yeah, this is, this is something that is a reality for judges that, you know, it is rare that there are attacks, but, um, you know, judges are in a position where they are dealing with um, really sensitive issues sometimes. And, um, you know, that can, that can put them in a position to be the subject of anger uh, for people. Like we said in, in this attack on, on Judge Salas' family, we don't know if she was the subject, but in many of these other ta- attacks, judges were the subject of the attack and they were the subject of, of some kind of harbored anger. Um, so it's, it's a reality of the job, unfortunately. Let's turn to the courthouses themselves now. Federal and state courts have been struggling to figure out how to resume more normal operations while protecting public health after the pandemic forced them this spring to postpone jury trials and hold more proceedings remotely via video and audio. Courts have begun to reopen, but some courts are pumping the brakes on reopening efforts as COVID-19 cases rise throughout much of the U.S. How many courts are pumping the brakes on reopening? Well, we've actually seen a few courts, um, many federal courts, uh, citing increases in their areas when they decide to extend their previous orders and say, you know, we're not going to be reopening, we're not going to restart in-person operations. We've actually seen some pushback states for restarting things like jury trials, um, citing those increases in, in cases. Um, but in other areas, we are seeing a, a little bit of tension between court uh, staff and, and lawyers in terms of, of reopening. Um, you know, there have been a couple of lawsuits. There's been at least one OSHA complaint 
Um, you know, and there's, there's questions, uh, urgent questions you know, about health and safety and, and standards to, to keep these courthouses safe for, for workers and, and attorneys. Have any lawyers or lawyers groups said, we don't want you to open the courts? We don't want to come back to the courthouse right now, or perhaps even victims or witnesses who have to testify don't want to come into that situation. So we have seen a little bit of pushback. And in New York, uh, that came to a head when several public defender groups sued the federal or the state court um, on July 14th, you know, saying that. Um, this is a violation of the ADA to have in-person hearings and require them. And the court pushed back on that, saying that in-person hearings, uh, you know, aren't aren't they could be um, they could be moved to a virtual proceeding if if that is something that the judge agrees upon. Um, but you know, public defender groups are are worried about this for themselves and their clients, and you know, they don't want their clients to be put in a position where they have to be called into court and potentially be put in contact with the the virus in in the courtroom. And that actually followed another lawsuit from the uh, court officers union uh, in in New York uh, filed at the beginning of July. And that lawsuit also alleges that uh, the state courts didn't provide enough uh, personal protective equipment and didn't provide enough sanitation to prevent people from getting sick. Um, so there are some, there's some legal action on this in New York uh, already. Uh, I haven't seen legal action elsewhere in the country, but um, New York is, is now, you know, we'll see how these cases uh, go forward. So what is this, what is the status of the courts in New York? Are any of them open yet? So the New York court system has been doing a gradual food reopening um, and it, recently they, they started grand juries again and they are starting some in-person operations, which was uh, kind of the flashpoint for this lawsuit. That was when uh, the public defenders wrote a letter to uh, the New York state court saying, you know, we don't feel comfortable with this and then later filed the lawsuit. Uh, but, you know, New York courts have, uh, they were, they were pretty, pretty much completely virtual for a period of time. And then gradually started moving back to these uh, in-person operations. How do they work it out? Do they decide before trial or before hearings what's going to happen, or do they just call them into the courthouse, if you know? Um, you know what? I, I, I don't know that. Um, and yeah, that's a great question. Um, I, I think that uh, a lot of these courts, it, it depends on the judge. It depends on the courtroom. Um, so it could be different case by case. Um, but you know, these are, these are general, uh, orders and general guidance from the courts and the court system. Um, and I think that's what's being taken issue with right now. I imagine that the court officers, a lot of the court officers aren't so happy to be back in person. And, and that is the, uh, that is the other lawsuit here is the, the court officers. And, you know, they're saying that, uh, they weren't provided with the, uh, the right amount of, of personal protective equipment. Of course, the, the court disputed that. They said, you know, uh, they, they have provided tens of thousands of masks and gloves and face shields. Um, but the, the court officers are saying that there have been union members who have actually died from this virus in New York. And, um, you know, that's a, something that they're trying to prevent going forward and, and something they're saying that the courts had a hand in. 
what are the new safety measures that the courts have instituted? So there are plenty of new safety measures across the country to respond to uh, the reopening and in-person operations. One of the most common ones that we're seeing is requiring masks for people, requiring social distancing. Uh, So North Carolina's Supreme Court required masks in all courthouses throughout the state. It's also something that we're seeing very popular in federal courts um, for masks to be required in in public areas for for both courtgoers and for staff. Um, You know, there are also checks at the doors for courthouses. So they're they're testing people's temperatures. They're asking them some, some health questions. Um, to try to make sure that people aren't coming into the, the courthouse if they have, you know, fever. Um, and then there are also some courthouses that are shutting down when they have a case of the virus in the courthouse. This was something we saw early on. Several courthouses had court workers um, and, and court officers who were testing positive for the virus. So the courthouse shuts down. They have the uh, General Services Administration come in and, and clean it out. That's the organization that helps with sanitation and uh, administration of these buildings. And uh, so they have them come in and, and help get the buildings ready for people to be there again. And we're seeing that again uh, in, in at least one area. The Northern District of Georgia closed its Gainesville courthouse on July 15th after a court officer tested positive for the virus. Uh, and they said that the, that courthouse will, will uh, be closed until they can clean it properly so they can get people back in. Um, so what we're seeing a few different measures happening across the country, new safety measures. Uh, you know, I think a, a lot of courts and, and, and people entering them are, are concerned about these environments where people are, pushed together into the same room. And sometimes it's because they, most of the time, it's because they have to be there. It's not a choice. It's not like so many of these other businesses we see where you can be there of your own accord. If you're in court, there is a matter that you have to resolve. Um, and that's one of the, the, the major concerns for, for courts is that, you know, they are, they're dealing with a population that is, is forced into this environment. In your story, I read that, they're encountering some resistance from independent-minded judges. Tell us about that. So in Georgia, um, the Chief Justice Harold Melton received a few complaints that judges uh, in the state had violated health or safety guidelines. And um, I spoke to him. He said some of those some of those cases were true. Some of them to to him didn't line up with what reality was. Um, but he said he recognized the continuing issue that judges potentially weren't following guidelines um, or the perception that they weren't following guidelines. And so um, in an order on July 10th, he said, you know, we're going to make sure that uh, people are following these safety guidelines for in-person proceedings. And he encouraged the use of video conference as well. Um, and he extended previous orders uh, to, to make sure that measures that were already put in place by the court were, um, were still in place. So, you know, that's the other issue with uh, a lot of, of courts is that judges are pretty independent in their own courtrooms and the decisions that they can make. Uh, so making sure that all of those individual judges are, are following these guidelines or every courtroom is addressing them the same is a challenge for courts. Thanks so much for being on the Bloomberg Law Show, Maddie. That's Madison Alder, Bloomberg Law Reporter. It is essential that we have a clear breakdown of the number of citizens and non-citizens that make up the U.S. populations. 
And President Trump is not letting a Supreme Court decision stop him from his goal of ensuring that undocumented immigrants are not counted in the 2020 census. After the Supreme Court blocked the administration's effort to add a citizenship question to the census form last year, Trump ordered the Census Bureau to gather citizenship data from the administrative records of federal and state agencies. Not only didn't I back down, I backed up because anybody else would have given this up a long time ago. The problem is we had three very unfriendly courts. That order is still being challenged in the courts, but Trump has already taken another step. On Tuesday, he signed a presidential memorandum to bar undocumented immigrants from being counted in the census, another move that's sure to be challenged in the courts on constitutional grounds. Joining me is Leon Fresco, a partner at Holland and Knight, formerly the head of the Justice Department's Office of Immigration Litigation. Leon, is this memorandum a way for President Trump to get around the Supreme Court decision blocking the citizenship question? Well, the idea originally of adding the citizenship question to the census was to try to in some way get at this question of who wasn't a citizen so that they could be excluded from the census. And so now, even though the citizenship question wasn't added to the census, what the Trump administration is trying to say is, well, we have other ways of trying to determine who's here without status. And by using those other ways, I will then make an order that says I'm not going to count those people toward the census. So does this presidential memorandum have the force of an executive order? This does not have the exact power of an executive order because the difference between a presidential memorandum and an executive order is that an executive order has to be published in the Federal Register and there's ways you can procedurally challenge it for not being done properly. What the president is saying is, I'm not making anything formal. I'm just issuing a policy memo that defines what a person is for the census as a person who is here with legal immigration status or a U.S. citizen. It cannot be a person with undocumented status. And so he's just saying that's just a policy memo that can't be then challenged in court because I, the president, get 100 percent power and authority to determine who a person is for the purposes of the census. Let's take the legal questions first and then the practical questions. The Constitution says that House districts shall be based on the whole number of persons in each state. What have courts interpreted that to mean? Well, what the courts have interpreted that to mean is that there's a difference between person and citizen in the United States Constitution. And sometimes the United States Constitution uses citizen And sometimes it uses person. And so when it uses person, it means person. It means any human being without regard to any sort of immigration status. And so that's what the courts have meant there. Now, you don't have to count people who are not subject to the jurisdiction of the U.S. government. So who are those people? Diplomats, people at the United Nations, people at the World Bank, the IMF, etc. So those individuals wouldn't be counted in the census. But other persons who are subject to the jurisdiction of the United States government are counted in the census. We've had attorneys general, California and New York, say that this is unconstitutional. The ACLU has said, we'll see him in court. We won last time. We're going to win again. 
what would be the basis of a lawsuit against this memorandum? So there's two bases for the lawsuit. One is procedural and one is substantive. The procedural basis for the lawsuit is to say that you can't do this via presidential memorandum because this is actually a substantive change of the law. When you're defining who is a human being for the purposes of the census, you can't just do that in a policy memo that you just kind of whipped up in the middle of the day. It has to go through all of the formal rulemaking processes and have notice and comment and regulations and things of this nature. It can't just be a memo like that. That's number one. But then substantively, that's a legal claim made in the memo, which is that undocumented individuals are not subject to being counted, even though they may have been here 10 years, 20 years, 30 years in the United States and thus are domiciled here for the purposes of the census, that there's no legal basis available for not counting them. Do you think this is a slam dunk case for the ACLU or the AGs? Yeah, I would be incredibly shocked if at the end of the day, the plaintiffs in this case did not prevail for the simple reason that when we want to talk about the context of originalism, back at the time of the Constitution, we didn't have all of these millions of different immigration statuses and who was a citizen and who was a green card holder and who was undocumented and who was in a transitionary status. I mean, right now, when you look at all of this, there's hundreds of different immigration statuses and some are in flux and some aren't. And so that's why the census uses the word person. And so person means person. And so if you're going to take person to mean something else now, after you've been doing it one way for hundreds of years, then that new interpretation, excluding person, will not be allowed to prevail. So let's look at this practically now. How would the administration actually determine the number of illegal immigrants in this country and in specific counties within the states? So this is actually a very interesting issue. There was, all the way up till 2018, a document that the Department of Homeland Security would publish every year called Estimate of Undocumented Individuals in the United States. And the most recent one of those is about two years old, so that wouldn't be an accurate count. The Census Bureau itself, through the ACS survey, has also tried to estimate the undocumented count. But what's also fascinating about this, it's almost impossible to do because people continually on a daily basis, and I'm not talking about one person or two people, I'm talking about tens of thousands of people every day go in and out of undocumented status because they might have overstayed their visa by a day or two. They put in an application to fix this. This gets fixed or they put in an application to fix it before they overstayed, but USCIS has taken too long to renew it. So they're in undocumented status during the middle of the time while the application is pending. And so it's uncalculable. All of this would have to be an estimate. And when you're doing this estimate, it is subject to wild deviations, which is why you have some of the restrictionist immigration groups saying, no, these numbers are in the 20 million range. And you have the Department of Homeland Security and the Census Bureau saying, no, it's between 11 and 14 million. And others say, no, 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 no. In fact, a lot of people have returned to Mexico and it's even less than that. The president's memo actually says, well, the president can just pick how many people are undocumented. 
And because of these wild deviations, that seems like the kind of thing that almost is too arbitrary for its own good. Even if the Census Bureau or the Department of Homeland Security could calculate the number of illegal immigrants in the country, how would they administer this? The president would just say, okay, this is the number for this state, this is the number for that state? Right. The way the executive order reads, the way this would work is, if California had a population of 60 million people, as an example, and then the Department of Homeland Security, along with the Census Bureau, were to determine that there was a population of 3 million undocumented people in California, they would just subtract 60 by 3 and say now California has 57. But they'd also have to do it vis-a-vis each county. And I don't see how you can get to that granular level of data because, you know, the county formulas also matter in the census as well. And not only are statuses transient, but people are transient too. And so to get to that, level of granularity, it's almost certainly throwing a dart up against the wall and just picking a number that the dart hits. And so that's the kind of thing you don't want to do, whereas it's much easier to just count how many human beings are in the United States at a specific time. I want to look at the political implications here. And a study last year by the Center for Immigration Studies, which is a conservative group, said that excluding immigrants would take three seats away from the blue states and redistribute them to the red states. So there are real implications of this count. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the executive memorandum itself actually lays that out and says, excluding the words it uses, is it says affording congressional representation and therefore formal political influence to states on account of their presence within their borders of aliens who have not followed the steps to secure lawful immigration status undermines those principles. But what they're saying, they go on to say that they don't want to reward states for basically doing things to encourage undocumented individuals to come into the United States and to be in their specific state. And so they are trying to say, we want to punish the states that are welcoming toward immigrants and and reward the states that are not welcoming toward immigrants. After the Supreme Court ruled on the citizenship question, President Trump ordered the Census Bureau to gather citizenship data from the records of federal and state agencies, and a majority of states refused to share information about driver's licenses or ID cards. That's being challenged in court. Where does that stand? Right, that challenge is pending, and there was actually some news about that today where the court in that case had said, hey, this new executive order actually becomes quite important in these cases now because now we see that this wasn't just some request for data. This actually is being applied in this particular method. And so the court seems to think in that case that the new executive order seems to undermine the arguments being made by the government about needing this data, because if the point of this data was to act in service of this executive order or this presidential memorandum, the court did not seem inclined to want to go in that route. There are going to be lawsuits filed, guaranteed lawsuits filed. Will this be put on hold? Will they be able to get temporary restraining orders to put this on hold as the cases proceed? My understanding is lawsuits will be filed next week in New York and in California. And 
in one of those two courts, if not both, will likely put a temporary restraining order on this, and then it will work its way up the court. And then the question is, will the Supreme Court rule in order to make sure that the count is decided with or without this issue? Or will the Supreme Court just deny third and say, look, we're, we're done with this census issue and move on? And so that's, that's what we wait to see. But, but we should have some clarification one way or another from the Supreme Court regarding its interest in this matter, I would say before the beginning of the fall. How long does the Census Bureau have to actually complete the census? So the completion of the census now because of COVID has been delayed till the end of September. And then after the end of September, then it's planning on going through a process between October and April of 2021 to process apportionment counts and redistricting data. And then they plan to deliver that apportionment count to the president on April 30th, 2021, which basically means if the president is not Donald Trump, then none of this will matter anyway. But if the president is Donald Trump, then Supreme Court has to basically decide by April of 2021, should that apportionment count include undocumented individuals or not include undocumented individuals? Thanks, Leon. That's Leon Fresco, a partner at Holland and Knight. I'm June Grosso, and this is Bloomberg.